Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Dear listener, I'm going to give you some fun facts. This is our 99th episode. We have never missed a weekly episode. They have come out on time every week for almost two years. As we cross the 100th episode next week, we will also reach another milestone, more than 40,000 downloads in almost 60 countries on six continents. In New Zealand alone, after my appearance on Radio New Zealand, more than 1,000 downloads. Man, who knew that we were going here two years ago, that this little podcast would reach all over the world? I cannot thank all the people who have supported me from the beginning the people who were the true believers when there were you know, very few listeners. I'll tell you that much. And it's just overwhelming. Mainly, I want to thank Brian Baltashevitz and Liz Egan at the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media and my great old producers like Allison Andrews and Rachel Clapp Miller, there from the beginning, who were there at like the very start. So thank you guys. Thank you to everybody who supported us through Patreon. We're going to keep on plugging. Thank you so much. People get out of hand. They just I don't think too many animals hold grudges, but people sure do. That's why I like animals. You know, they're pretty predictable. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Man Listening. I'm Stuart Watson. This week, my friend Joan Coggin, who I invariably like get in an argument with over like nothing. And we've argued politics. We're very different. We're you know, all kinds of things. But I said, I should sit down and just listen to her, just listen about her life, her story. And she's a perfectly nice person. I don't know why we keep arguing. Um, And I think you'll find she's a perfectly nice person too, who has, there's a lot to her. And you really find out about it if you just sit down and listen to her for a little while. And so my friend, Joan Coggin. Uh, where were you born? I was born in Muskegon, Michigan. Hospital or home? It, I was in a hospital, although my mother's older sister, Jody, says I almost was born in the cab. Oh, it was qu- close. Oh, it was close. Yeah. yeah. And for your mother, you're number what of how many? I'm number one of 13. Holy cow. And all of them survived? Yes. I don't count the miscarriages that she had. How many of those were there? Um, it depends. I thought there were five, but I'm a little kid, you know, and I 
wouldn't un I didn't understand when my mother got sad and got sick. So she claims three. So I'm not quite sure. Same father? Yes. So they stayed married that whole time? Yes. They engaged before my father left for World War II. He was in the Normandy invasion. And he had planned to go to college. He accelerated his schooling at Notre Dame and graduated a year early. And he was sent off to an engineering school somewhere outside of Washington, D.C. I should know what it is, but I can't remember. And then they pulled him out of that, and he was one of the people that stormed the, the shores, and it was horrible. He Did he ever talk about it? He is very vague about it, but he said it's very hard to walk on a dead friend. I get it. Did anyone ever, like, press him? No. It's, it was kind of a agreed-upon truce that when, if he wanted to talk, he'd talk. He was a big guy, he was 6'3", and you didn't corner him. I, I didn't really care to know. I was busy because I, want, I thought my mother was an angel and I wanted to be like her, so I was you know, on her apron every minute, which was good and bad. You know, because I, I missed a lot of my childhood, but I experienced a lot of great stuff that's helpful and still is helpful today. I think when I got older, I think today, and I love it now because when I get with little kids, I can be a little kid in an instant. I just transform into a six-year-old. When I play with my grandson, he's six and a half. If he's sitting on the ground, I sit on the ground. It's harder for me to get up than it is for him, but I'll sit on the ground. When I get home the ne that night or the next morning, I rue the day that I sat on the ground when it was damp because I'm old and arthritis happens. But you know, everything that I did, my decisions I made, like for instance, to shadow my mother were great um, living experiences. And I did play, but I missed some of the neat friendships that you have when you're little. And it really impacts me now as an adult because um, I want to have friends, but I don't want to be in the middle of it. I'd rather watch them play and kind of like you did if you were the caretaker or the nanny or something like that. And I got, I'd get um, vicarious thrill out about watching people enjoy life. And we have new kids in the neighborhood. And my next door neighbor calls them those feral brats. They're not feral. The sound of them laughing, their range is seven through 13, and they're happy and they're playing and they take their train sets out and they put them on the retaining wall and they let them go down. And it's just, you know, all the things that we used to do in the house when we were growing up and rainy days and stuff, um, just it's the same thing. And they just make me smile. And actually, quite honestly, I think I'm tired at the end of the day from watching them because I, I live outside myself in things I see. I love nature and for that reason too, you know, just sitting still and watching because things will happen that, you know, if you just don't, if you just stop, you'll see something. I used to lie on the ground with toothpicks and try to herd ants. You know, people talk about herding cats. You think that's hard, that's easy. Try to herd ants. And I'd lay there for hours and hours just trying to get them to go the way I want It'll never happen in a lifetime. I wouldn't do it today because I probably couldn't get back up off the ground 
or I might just enjoy myself to death. I don't know. But nature just, you know, turn Well, talk o- about your control issues, Joan, <laughs> trying to hurt ants. <laughs> well, yeah, but I didn't expect, you know, I think I wanted to train them and maybe you have circus ants, like you have circus dogs. <laughs> or or fleas. Yes, the fleas. Yes, don't talk about fleas. I got two cats. <laughs> And I, I think they just, it's always an open door to fleas, but they don't have any right now, thank So God. are you a cat lady? Do you own that? Um, yes, but not just cats, because um, now this will probably make you squirm a little bit. I really want to get another ball python. I enjoy the heck out of snakes. The only problem with them is that um, if there's a shortage of feeder mice, and most of the time there is, Get, I had this sick idea. I would raise my own. So you start out with a couple, and you tell the couple, and say, well, we're only going to need a mouse ever so often because the snake doesn't eat all the time. Well, they don't pay any attention, and pretty soon, instead of having two mice and a couple of babies, you got, like, mice all over the place, and then the cats let them loose in the house. It's a grand circus. But I've had rabbits, and German shepherds are my favorite right now and have been for 30 or 40 years. Um, I've had all of them at the same time, and they've all been copacetic with each other. Do you name the squirrels? I have one squirrel that from the get-go I called Gordo, because Gordo was immensely fat. And I thought it was because Gordo ate a lot. And one day Gordo is standing on the doormat of my patio and got his paws up on the sliding glass door, and I discovered that Gordo was a nursing mother. So I knew that there were Gordettes up in the tree. You changed pronouns. Yeah, well, I never even thought about pronouns. I just call her Gordo. (laughs) And I'll go out and cuss at her, and she doesn't care. I have a squirt gun, and I I only put water in it. I don't put Clorox or something like that in it. But um, if a squirrel can laugh, she sees me coming and just kind of like laughs because it's just water. And I just do it to tease. And it's just kind of a game, you know, you develop some sort of a rapport with the animals that live around you. And, you know, they play back. They're having just as much fun. I mean, animals like to have fun. You watch them. You think they're fighting, they're playing. And people are like that, too, except people get out of hand. They just, I don't think too many animals hold grudges, but people sure do. That's why I like animals. You know, they're pretty predictable. No resentments. They don't have resentments. Not really. I think a lot of animals are very, very loving in their own way. Did you have animals in the house when you were growing up with those 13 kids? We had 13 kids. Um, my dad used to feed strays out behind the garage. So we usually... Did they had, ever come in the house? Well, only one came in the house. His name was Tigger. And back then you didn't have them spayed and neutered because you didn't do this. This is like back in the 50s. And Tigger was a scrapper and he would disappear for like a couple months in the spring and come, come back with half an ear gone and he's like that. But he would lay on this one footstool at the entrance of what we called our TV room, which was not big enough to hold us all. But as you walked by, he'd either reach out and scratch you or, or reach out further and bite you. And that was just the nature of the beast. He was, you know, he grew up feral, so he never became unferal. Quite personally, I don't think a cat is ever domesticated. Anyone that thinks they are is crazy, because just like, I can't remember the name of the 
big cat handlers out in Las Vegas. They had the white tiger that turned on them. Every cat is wild inside. And I've got one, he, he's crazy. I can tell in his face when he flips. In fact, I have a bandage on my arm right now for where he bit me last night. Just out of the blue, it just came up and chomped into me, drew blood. And then he kind of looks at me and I, well, I'll take what I'll say, I punch him in the nose. And he just walks off and comes back and rubs my leg and it's all forgiven and it's just, cats are weird. I like them though. You think you get along with animals better than people? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't go around and scratch people's ears. <laughs> and I don't hang out with people that slobber on my hands. But, <laughs> but I mean, uh, when I walk in this park quite often, people will have problems. They're, they want to come to me. I'm very open to animals. I used to escape from the house of madness, all the noise and commotion and go and walk along, well, Muskegon Lake goes into Lake Michigan, but there were cattails there, and I used to put on my boots, or sometime I didn't care, just go barefoot and walk among the cattails, and animals would come to me. You said escape the house of madness. What made it a house of madness? Well, there are certain times when, you know, they're hungry, and it's late afternoon or whatever, and the- They who? Oh, my brothers and sisters. Oh. The constant ma'am. And for some reason, we attracted all the neighborhood kids. And there were three other families that had double-digit numbers of kids, and they were always at our house. Why do you think that was? Because we were pretty relaxed, and we could, we could play in the living room. We couldn't fight in the living room, which is funny. My dad came home from work one night, and we were all uh, roughhousing in the living room, including my mother. And he came in and he said, all right. All of you sit in a chair on your hands. I don't want to hear a peep out of you. And my mother goes, dinner's going to be late. And it just ruined the whole scene because we're all laughing. Because she talked back. And he couldn't hold it back. He starts laughing too because it really was quite funny. And the fact that she joined in. But our mother was pretty, my parents were just kids too. What of your mother do you see in yourself? Everyone says, I talk like her and I gesture like she does. She, well, one of the, one of the flaws, and you I You say point, she does, she's still alive? No, she died in 2009. Ah. She was 89, 88, 88. But, um, I mean, I feel a presence all the time. And, you know, if I, if I, there's certain things I always shared with her, even now, I mean, she's been dead 12 years now. Um, I'll go like, oh, I can call. No, I can't call mom. But I, I, I always feel like she's there. Do you ever talk to her? I think so. I don't talk out loud to her. Do you, do you get any kind of impression or feeling of? My parents are with me all the time. Um, as the oldest, I was incorporated into their friends circle of friends. Very early. I was five foot five when I was in third grade, so I pulled off being older than I really was. And I was relatively well read. And so I, I moved in with them all into their set. Now, I, they drank and partied, and I didn't drink or party. That was something that happened when I got to college. But I was always a welcomed member of the adult table. My dad called me Red Doll, and I used his name and Red Doll as a handle for email and stuff like that.
And that was because my, of red hair. I had red hair. Yeah. Well, it was more like pink because I was very pale and well, I was a, a pink baby and oh. my hair was, you know, light colored. So it, my dad said it was pink, but, and it was, it went through stages of red and um, more toward copper and stuff like that. Of course, I don't know what color it is right now. I try to, I don't like the color that red hair does when it goes gray. And I have a great friend who's been a hair, my hairdresser for 30 years, and she just, she just handles it. I don't tell her what to do. Your mother would have said about your personality, Joan is so what? I guess in a way, well, I was independent. So how did that look? What would you do? I was the one in the house that could fix things. I took things apart. So what do they call that? Kinesthetic learning or tactile, you know, use your hands. Yeah, and see back then, you could take the back off, uh, back of your TV off and tinker around with it and figure out what's wrong with it. And I'd go do that and I'd say, Dad, don't touch the tubes. Just don't let anybody touch the tubes. I'll be right back. And I'd jump on my bike and go to the drugstore and you could buy tubes for your television set. And I'd pick out what I want and come back. And he said, Tigers are going to, they're going to the throw Detroit the first Tigers. pitch. Detroit Tigers. They're going to throw the first pitch at 1.30. You got to have this TV functioning. And I would. He goes, how did you do that? He says, well, Dad, you just take off the bag. I don't know what I was doing. And then one of my best girlfriends, well, I'm a one-er, I'm one-on-one. Georgia Creech and I were best friends. And she lived right down the block. And we were somewhat telepathic because we knew when we wanted to talk and we'd just go out in the corner. But we took some electronics courses from, I don't know if it was from Western Michigan or where, but during the summer we'd take these um, correspondence. correspondence courses in electronics and we would make things. Yeah. They weren't functional Before things. there was YouTube videos, before there was online learning, oh, yeah. there was, you put it in the mail, they'd send yeah. you something. They'd send us all these little capacities. And there were no videos. No. <laughs> and my dad would say, you can't plug that thing into our house. So we'd go next door and plug it into the neighbor's porch outlet. We never blew a fuse. <laughs> we followed the instructions. But you were a tinkerer. Yes. You were just trial and error. Yes. Fidget with things. Yeah, and when it came time to take home ec, I took car mechanics. Yeah. And I love that. Auto mechanics. Auto mechanics, yeah. And you, you know, I used to be able to change oil and do all that kind of stuff. The funniest thing is, at some point in early marriage, my husband in college worked for uh, a beer distributor with the Anheuser-Busch line. Was he your husband then? I married him after I graduated. Ah, okay. Okay. So y'all were dating. Yeah, we, I was a sophomore when we started dating. So we got married after I graduated, and he was tinkering around a little bit because he worked and took him an extra year. But anyway... I decided that our drinking careers weren't going to get us anywhere, so I bought a business in Pompano Beach. It was an electric holes, not electric holes, electric lighting holes uh, business. We did retail and wholesale. So you could come in and buy the chandelier or whatever. Right. We also well, we bid our first big job was a car dealership in Delray Beach, and we won that bid. And that dealership still has our lighting in it today. <laughs> 
for better and for worse. Well, I'll tell you, it was a real feat because they wanted open bays and they wanted lighting and it had to be dropped, but it had to be able to move enough that it not snap in high winds, but again, stable enough that it's not, anyway. So you, you used what you learned as a tinkerer to go into business. Like you didn't have to know electrical engineering no. to be very good at supplying lighting at the retail and wholesale. Oh yeah, and I mean, these people would come in with a lamp and say, I need a new plug on it. And I said, well, you can, and they said, oh, I might get a shock. I mean, a lot of people think that that lamp with a cord coiled around it is going to give you a shock. It's not going to give you a shock. Yeah. And but they also don't want to run the risk of short-circuiting everything, of big blue sparks shooting out. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Which is funny, because my dad was, his thing was marketing. So he, we still have an electrical wholesale company in Michigan. And my dad, could, he can't change a light bulb. And I can remember he went upstairs, the third floor was remade, that was the boy's nest, squirrel nest. And he went up there and he was gonna do something in the bathroom, which had no windows. And it was gonna regard, uh, in regard to, he was gonna have to, he needed to turn the electric, electricity off. But he couldn't see. He came downstairs with a melted screwdriver. But one of the things that I really miss the most is my dad was a scallywag, and now what does that mean? Oh, he he did some of the craziest things in the whole world. And my mother's usual response was, "Oh, Blair," and I can hear her over and over again. Oh, Blair! They never like got what me. was what was crazy. Well, there was this. This is one of them. This is a great story. Um, the ice cream man used to come about six o'clock and park in front of our house. This ice cream truck played Casey would waltz with a strawberry blonde. And there's always a trigger. Over I'm and over. Over. And at six o'clock and all the kids want ice cream. We had 13 at the time. Kelly's had 11. I can't remember the last name of the other people because they were younger than I. So I don't, I, but anyway. All so, Irish Catholic? Oh yeah. So you got 30 some kids there all <laughs> wanting ice cream. Just from three families. Yes, and then there's the McCarthy's, they only had five, and you know, so on and so forth, lots of kids. And my father had gotten home from work and he always laid down on the couch and we had a, two papers a day. So the paper, he starts out holding it and of course it lands on his face and he's sleeping, but this one day he rose up from the couch and I watched him and I mean, it was weirdest thing, it was like in a dream and he moved just smoothly like he was being transported by spirits or something. He went to the back hall and he got down the big hedge trimmers, the manual <laughs> hedge trimmers. He went out the back door, down the driveway, up the sidewalk, climbed up on top of the ice cream truck and cut all the wires <laughs> to the sound system. To the speaker. <laughs> yes. So anyway, this is a small town. It's nine square miles. So everybody knows everybody. And ice cream man sues my dad. Well, two doors down, I mentioned Kelly, Kelly's. Kelly is a partner with Kelly, Kelly, and Kelly. He represented <laughs> my dad. Well, this same, well, my dad ended up paying. I mean, we have an electrical wholesaling business, so. So he had to pay. Well, he had to rewire the darn thing. So uh, in high school, what were you like? I was gonna be valedictorian. Oh, and you were? Yes. 
but I was like president of the science club. Yeah. And just super student. student. Yeah, studious. Yeah. Um, I would go to the Friday night dances when we had them and that sort of thing. But I came home and studied. Huh. Um, so you were social. Yeah, I was, and I was in Glee Club, and I was in this and that, and I did things, but I monitored my time and regulated what I did. Um, and on top of that, I, I, I did a lot of homework for a lot of the guys. <laughs> I mean, did I they pay you? No. I didn't get any dates either because no one wanted to spoil me. You know, if I were going steady with somebody, someone else wouldn't be able to get their help with their homework and I wrote um, notes from their mothers um, <laughs> deer season you know you, you forged you, notes yes but they'd bring me the stationery <laughs> and different pens I mean it's a kind of like a so you little, could have gone into forgery we'll establish that um, um, I helped my son make uh, fake drivers uh, IDs when he was in high school he oh did a really man. good job too yeah you're uh, the cool mom. Yeah, I was the cool You're the mom. enabler. Yep, absolutely. Um, so if if we had had stopped Joan in, in senior year and said, what do you want to be when you grow up, you would have said? A lawyer. What kind of lawyer? Criminal. Why? Like defense? Only people that I felt were innocent. I wasn't. Def I was going to refuse to plea bargain, and I was going to. I was going to reset the legal system so there'd be no more plea bargains. If you're guilty, you're guilty. Take it or leave it. No downgrading. I. I, I was going to be Joan of Arc. And what instituted in you this sense of, I don't know, justice or sticking up for the uh, innocent? I just, you know, um, there was a lot of, I think part of it had to do with reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, so you were going to be a female Atticus Finch? Absolutely, which ironically, my grandson's name is Atticus. And his... But you didn't name him. Yes, I did. Is it after Atticus Finch? No, this is, no, well, to me, yes. When he, when Atticus was born, my son and his wife lived in New Jersey, and the prison Attica was relatively nearby. And my son was really impressed with that movie about the uprising in the prison Attica. And he thought if we would name him Attica, when he became the quarterback in high school, everyone would stand up in the stands and yell, Attica, Attica. <laughs> and he thought this was going to be really super. That's bizarre. And his mother is just going nuts. So I said, let's, let's kind of maneuver this around. And uh, Matt, uh, you know that, like in Italian and Spanish, men's names end with U.S. and women's names end with A. So why don't you name him Atticus instead of Attica? He said, "Okay." So he was suggestible. He was suggestible. Well, it sounded like he, you didn't demand that. No, the child. no. <laughs> but. Um, but, and now Atticus has a dog named Scout, which of course was Atticus Finch's <laughs> daughter. But it gets worse. My mother named my youngest sister, Jean Louise, after reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And Scout's real name was Jean Louise. 
It so goes we, deeper and deeper. Oh yeah, I mean this goes. I mean there are layers and layers of this thing going on. But I, I mean that's one of my favorite books. Uh, that and uh, Atlas Shrugged, a skinny book and a big big book. And what appealed to you about that book? I was in love with Daphne. And her the way she. I don't know uh, the story. Oh, I should. Well, as an English major. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know that it'd be something you'd read in any English course or anything like that. I never read it for school. I read it for pleasure. Hmm. Um, and it, you know, part of it today, I said, "I got. I got to read this thing again because there's a lot of what she wrote and Rand wrote about that's happening right now." And like, if you believe everything you read in the news and stuff like that. You see rich people buying islands off the coast and stuff like this and moving offshore and all that sort of thing. And that's basically where the story begins is um, New York City is just nothing but shambled buildings and everyone's poor and they can't find um, work, they can't find this. And now everyone's rich in New York City. Yeah, right. <laughs> and in Manhattan at least. Yeah, but you see these pictures of the old downtown there. I mean, it's scary to think of, but it's been 10 years since I read it last. Mm. But yeah. it made an impact on you. Yeah. yeah. What what kind of impact, what would you say? that? It... At the time I read it, I thought that there's no way this could ever happen. It just didn't make sense. And today I would like to reread it and try to see how it does make sense. Yeah. How much of it was prescient or prophetic or... It's just all so, so greedy. I mean, and, and that's, you know, that there's all through history, the theme of greed seems to move everything. You know, I've had a couple of people that I know and um, they said, well, what do you, what do you mean by we're, we live in such a selfish society. And I said, well, look at your really rich people. There's no way they can spend it all. Yet they keep on wanting more and getting more money and more money. And I mean, there's people that have no money. And so I don't believe in giving anything to anyone. Just say, you know, here's some money. Go keep on watching TV and don't do anything with yourself. Give people an incentive because there's, I mean, I think it's quite visible and telltale that when you rent something or give them public housing or something like that, it might be nice when they move in, but it, because they don't have an interest in it, hard work and whatever, it gets dilapidated and they don't have any pride in it. And that's very important. But I think with the mega rich people, there's a line they cross where they no longer see the need to have it, but just to gain it. It's like there's no king that ever had a big enough kingdom. And I think when you start scaling back and be reasonable, but I don't think anybody should get uh, W.C. Fields. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. It tastes better if you work for it. Did you read to your kids? Oh, yeah. Well, I have only the one, and we read a lot. Your son. Yeah. So out of 13, as one of 13, you decided to have one. No, no, it's just the way it happened. Oh, it just happened that way. Yeah. I mean, um, 
Matt was 18 months old when his dad picked up and ran away with a woman 20 years his senior. Oh, I'm sorry. And so, I mean, I had to quickly turn my head around and become a dad, which was great fun because I'm a tomboy. Mom and dad. Mom and dad. And we'd go, I, I mean, remember, I, we were down at the inlet, south inlet in Boca Raton, and I'd bought some live bait, and we were, I was hoping, I was hoping, I can't remember what I was hoping was running, but I was hoping something we could catch and eat. So, That's like sudden, subsistence fishing. Yeah, but it was fun. But Did I, you need to fish to feed? No. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I did in a way. In fact, actually, I mean, Like, did my he parents, take the business? Oh, he drove it into the ground and disappeared. Uh, in fact, the car he was running was repoed, and it was a Cadillac. So what did you do to... Well, for the Cadillac, I went to court. No, I mean, what did you do to feed your... Oh, um, I worked for a bank. I well, you got the, a job. You got a J-O-B. Yeah, I got a J-O-B. Uh, I w well, I had other experiences besides lighting business. So I worked at the trust company and I uh, worked with equity portfolios and I was also managing some escrow accounts for a bunch of hotels and stuff down in Miami. I traded treasuries. I, I tried to be frugal because he, I didn't have, the the insurance they gave wasn't really good and he had asthma and a whole bunch of crap. Well, was he good with the child support? Hell no, he was in a different state. They didn't have reciprocity. We didn't have an address for him. We had nothing. In fact, I couldn't even serve on him. We went. To, we had to publish. Did he ever show back up? He showed up here in Charlotte when Matt was 13 years old. Came in to visit to see his son. And how'd that go? It was all right, I guess. My son hates it. Did you say get the hell out of here? No, I wanted. I, you know, the thing was, I loved David. Yeah. I loved David, and I didn't. That didn't die until Matt came home from his funeral. He was funerals in Arizona, um, and parts of his secret life were exposed. And both his brothers and sisters and Matt just—he was a rat. He had was. He let a lot of people down. I don't think he left the let the people down that were the beneficiaries of his kindness. He adopted families because he could leave them and not be responsible for them. So he's an abandoner. Yeah. Left a lot of people. Probably. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I saw him once or twice. I saw him when he paid for Matt and Megan's wedding. It was on Hatter's Island. And I think that was the last time I saw him. That was in 2009. Yeah. And he had wife three was with him. So you don't talk about him with much bitterness now. It's kind of more matter of fact. Yeah. Um, I look at him as I, without him, I wouldn't have had Matt. Without Matt, I wouldn't have had Atticus. So, I mean, I can think of all the bad things that he did and walk around with that kind of crap on my back, or I can just count the blessings and walk away from it. It's like, you know, if you go bankrupt, you move on and you do the best you can. If you carry around all that kind of garbage, you're gonna be a bitter bitch. I don't wanna be a bitter bitch. I can be a bitch without being bitter. My grandson does lots of bee 
tongue twisters that I'm not going to get into. <laughs> my second husband, although I have every reason to hate him to death, saved my life. And he also introduced me to his mother, whom I dearly love, and I was her caretaker until she died. How did he save your life? I was not, after um, David died and uh, I had another boyfriend that was killed suddenly in a car accident. And that just, that one tumbled me. And I was drinking too much and doing a lot of other shit. And I just, and I met him through the job at the bank. And work-wise, we, we were a good mix, but he was in Jacksonville and I was down in South Florida. So I only knew him on weekends, how he lived on weekends. I didn't know who he was or what he was. I married him and he wasn't anything like what I thought, but um, he, he created that scenario I was missing of having a family and being responsible. So in that regard, he saved my life because I probably wouldn't be alive today if I had not got married to somebody that, you know, would set down the law and make me behave. Stable. Yeah, it was a stable. Well, what was misbehavior that could have? Oh, I was drinking too much. I was crowds and being out late and that kind of stuff. It just, I was not being a responsible. I was Were you working. a bar drinker? Yeah. Did you have a watering hole where oh, yeah. everybody knew your name? Absolutely. That was your community? Absolutely, the banana boat in Boca Raton. <laughs> oh, no, and, and then, what, then I moved up to Boynton Beach. To give you an idea, like, it was almost 35 years, and it was had its more bad spots and high spots, but um, his mother's birthday is Veterans Day. And I, it always pissed me off because either the, the card got there too early or it got there too late. It could never be on time. So since I was her caretaker, I always just deliver it in person. But she said, I really like to get letters in my mailbox. So, <sighs> but anyway, every year on her birthday, I email him and thank him for letting me know his mother. And also when we divorced, I had a little kitty. It was a, well, um, she never was feral because I nabbed her out of the colony before she was old enough to know any better. But anyway, he and Dust Bunny became really good friends. So when we got a divorce, I said he could have her. So every Veterans Day, I thank him for, and you know, tell him that I'm thinking of his mother, and then he always says, appreciate you remembering her, and then he tells me what, how Dust Bunny's doing. When, what was the significance of Veterans Day? Well, it was her birthday. Oh, And there's no you. mail on Veterans Day. Oh, I get you. So you couldn't, you would have had to have special delivery or whatever. Yeah. And you were going to get criticized whether it was early or well, late. Well, yeah, I mean, no, in, in my mind, I couldn't be on time. Yeah. I mean, I got to be perfect. You know, A minuses weren't enough. I had to have A plus. Had to be valedictorian. Had to be the top. Why? Where do you think that sense of perfectionism? Oh, I know. I know. Well, is it necessarily not necessarily perfect, but at least on top? But I mean, why did well, you have to be number one? Seven years old, my father comes home and says, "Guess what?" And of course, you got to say, what? He says, you have a baby sister. And I said, can you trade it for a brother? <laughs> and I saw her as a threat. 
Because you had just had brothers up until that yes, point. Yes, and I was going to lose my exclusive position in the As hierarchy. The, the daughter. Yeah. And. And did you? In my eyes, it was constantly a threat. I was told after my dad died that all of them resented his favoritism to me. He said, if you go back and look at the pictures, he said, you're in every single one. And would you be close to him in proximity? Yeah. Like right next to him or yeah, sitting on a knee or something like that? Well, we weren't a real touchy-feely family, but like when we ate dinner, I wanted to be either on his left or his right. I preferred to be on his left because he gestured too much with his right hand. Did you guys, oh, he, would he smack you? He spanked me once, and it was because, this will kill you, we had a boxing ring in the basement, and instead of fighting when we got mad, we'd glove up and have to go down there and duke it out. And you I went, box. Yeah, we box. And I put on my gloves, and I didn't tie them. And that was a cardinal rule, because a loose lace can put an eye out. I didn't tie my gloves. I got a whooping for it. And I cried and sobbed and sobbed, and he said he would never put a hand on me again, and he didn't. That was either second or third grade. So at the dinner table, did you guys have more or less assigned seating where you sat at the same chair night after night? No, because at some point we had to go to two tables. We had a real long table, and then we had a big round table, which if they weren't looking, there were, well, my mother tried not to f serve vegetables that could go airborne <laughs> because we'd make catapults with our spoons and we'd target. And would there be one parent at each table? Or no, no. My mother and father were at the head and tail of the table, always. And usually, well, I was never there when there wasn't a high chair. Well, how did they maintain order in all this? When one got punished, we all felt the uh, impact. So there was a lot of peer pressure not to make waves. And- To rat anybody out. Yeah, and the thing is, is like, even like the McCarthy's or the Millers or Kelly's or whatever, if one of them got um, suspended from watching TV, it ruined it for everybody because Mrs. Miller would call my mother, okay, he can't watch TV and he's gonna come over to your house. And so we, none of us could watch TV. So we kept, the, there was, um, you know, that peer pressure to keep this line straight and we did. We beat each other up. I'm not bloody nose, but you know, you, there, there was hell to pay if you got us all off TV. Not that we watched it that much. As Catholics, you know, relatively conservative, religious Catholics, how did your parents regard John F. Kennedy? Well, I hate to tell you this, but my father, um, first of all, he was Episcopalian, and he didn't convert to Catholicism until after graduation from Notre Dame because he didn't want to go to Mass on Sunday. <laughs> and that's the truth, from his mouth. Um, I don't think he was either Episcopalian or Catholic. I think he was just very spiritual, but he did the things that were necessary to play the role and stuff like this. He did not like Jack Kennedy. Uh, I, th I think more he didn't like his father, but he did not like Jack Kennedy. Didn't like Joe Kennedy and yeah. the 
buying of votes in West Virginia. Yeah. And that, that kind of My thing. dad was really political, very political. In fact, um, he was, and this had nothing to do with where he went politically, but he was taught how to swim by Ronald Reagan in the Rock River. Ronald Reagan's grandparents lived next door to my great-grandparents. I never met Ronald Reagan face to face, but we, before he was governor, we would write. I wish I had the letters back then. I didn't know they were any importance, but. And Are I, they still around somewhere? You think I somebody's got them? I don't think so. I, don't, I think they just, in the many moves and stuff like that, and I didn't know the value of them until it was probably too late. I do have a picture of him. Um, you went to Catholic school? Yeah, 16 years. <laughs> and anyway, so. So did you get along with the nuns? Oh, yeah. I mean, they put on the, well, after I was gone, my brothers and sisters, I mean, they go, why can't you be like your sister? She's so responsible, and she studies and gets her homework done, and she doesn't talk in class, oh, blah, blah, they blah. they must have hated you. They hated me. They, they still do. No. But anyway, I questioned her. She said, you know, when the light is on on the altar, that signifies that God is there. I go, oh. So this is like right after Easter. I said, okay, um, when God is, when the light is on the altar, God is there. She goes, yes. I said, so when they put the light out at one o'clock on Good Friday and they don't light it again till Sunday, where is he? God is everywhere. But he's not there because the light's not on. <laughs> and how old were you when you were having this theological contradiction? First grade. <laughs> now, I look back to that. And did the sister take a ruler and wrap your knuckles for her dog? She just told me to sit on it. She didn't say shut up, but, you know, it's kind of. But I, I figured it out later. You went to Fort Lauderdale to spring break. Of course. Yeah. But yeah it I was springtime. Yeah. I mean, where else would he go? Yeah. But, I mean, and, like, one day I was spinning my rosary. I think every kid. I mean, they, Twirling they, it. Yeah. She says, giving the devil a ride on the end of the rosary. I said, my rosary's blessed. He wouldn't ride on it. Just go like, slap your face. I mean, but I kept getting straight A's. So, you know, what do you do with a smart ass? Promote them. Yes. Make up somebody else's problem. Right. But they couldn't keep me back because I knew this stuff. And <laughs> I was, I was, well, and I was hated by my classmates too because you couldn't, because I blow the curve. Yeah. And that really, I, I'm, in high school, I'm taking some courses, junior high during the summer because I'm bored. And, and did you, do you still go to mass? Occasionally. When? Well, the last one I went to was um, end of August, first of September. I have a neighbor I've known for, well, I met her in late um, to 2016 she was reclusive and she reminded me f physically of someone and I tried to be friendly with her and she was like I say she was reclusive anyway um, she died suddenly and the only reason it was found in the timely manner was her son her grand her nephew called her every Sunday after mass and I knew she went to st. Gabriel's no, I mean just St. Matthew's, because I got her mail by mistake and, uh, you know, connect the dots. So anyway, when they came down here and everything, I went to the visitation because I just felt obligated to, because I liked her even though I didn't know her. 
You and want her, her last sort of human contact. Yeah. And I was talking to her nephew, whom I really enjoy. In fact, I enjoyed his whole family that came. And I was talking to him, and I said, damn it. And he said, what? I said, I'd swear she winked. And he says, I wouldn't put it past her. I mean, I really did. And so the following day was the funeral, so I went. I was the only person from native from Charlotte that was there. And I'm really Everybody glad. Everybody else out of town. Yeah, related. And I didn't feel good about, well, I felt good about being there. I didn't, I, I was not paying attention. It felt, it felt good. It felt good to be there. Um, felt like the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And it made my day, and I was. So I'm hearing you say that the only reason you go to church is. Well, that uh, time to, I've gone. I keep wanting, you know. I, in fact, I have. I mean, do you think your funeral will be at the Saint Somebody or others? Well, if my son has anything to do with it, they'll he'll take me out and throw me to the sharks. But um, I don't know. But I mean, I, what do you want? I mean, if you get to say, what would you like? Nothing. You want a party? No. I'd like them to take care of my pets if I have any. To make sure that my books got distributed to people that would read them. And I don't know. I mean, I, I don't feel a necessity to care. So you don't want a coffin and a big headstone? and what Is there a family plot anywhere? The plot is full. It's got my mother, my father, my father's parents. Do you have, are all your siblings living? All but the one that was killed by the drunk driver in 2010. And where was he buried? He was cremated because... And so there's no headstone? No. Huh. I don't know who has his ashes. I presume his wife does. Well, let me ask a rude question, and maybe you don't have to answer it. Uh, how's your health? Excellent. Good. Um, Congratulations. I have only one prescription that I take on a daily basis, and the doctor said you don't need it, but let's, and that's for cholesterol, it's five milligrams of whatever that thing is. I don't even pay attention. All I know is if I drop it on the floor, I'll never find it because it's so teeny, but that's the only prescription that I take daily. If we get struck by lightning right now, and the only thing that survives is this little piece of audio, what is your legacy? I guess, at least I, I was happy up to the last minute. I've been pretty happy all my life. Only time I haven't been happy is when I allow myself to sit in the dark spot. And you know, I, you know, like getting up and, I mean, that's when the, the doctor said, he says, you're considering your age. He says, I don't believe what you're doing. And I said, considering my age, it's what I'm doing that got me here. I said, you know, when you start letting the darkness pull you down, you go down. And if you don't, I mean, you just, you just keep, keep climbing. I mean, there's no such thing as a bad day. I make it a bad day. And I may not feel good, but I don't have to make you feel bad. And I can at least try my best to be, you know, a teammate. I've got a next door neighbor um, who's got some 
personal problems. And she's always mad at me. She said, why are you always so upbeat? And I said, because it makes me feel good. And it makes you feel good. No, it makes me jealous. And I said, why? Why don't you join in the party? Would you call yourself a grateful person? I think so. You seem like a very social person, like a connector. Yeah. You want to gather people together. But I also like to step out. I, I don't know if it's take credit for it or what. I just want to see things start. Is that community building? I guess so. And it's really, it annoys me when it doesn't happen. Like when I first moved where I am right now, I didn't know anybody. So I got on the Homeowners Association hoping I'd know anybody. The people I knew for the first year or so were the people that misbehaved and the people that bitched about them. And that's it. So I started going out walking. I meet people that own dogs. I have a dog lust, but I don't need a dog. I want a dog. Don't let me go to the pound. But um, so anyway, it was Memorial Day or something, and I got my big Weber out, and I put it out in the parking lot. The grill. And I started grilling. And lo and behold, nobody came. No, actually, one couple came, and they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to meet some people. And they introduced themselves, and we took everything to their house. They were going to grill. They didn't grill. They made salad and whatever. We had a great night. Um, the guy was a pastor of a church, not in Charlotte, but somewhere out in Concord or somewhere. I can't remember. And we became friends. And through them, I met other people around. So it worked, but it didn't work the way I wanted because most of the people were of a different generation and they don't, they, they don't come together like they used to. This, this is the first time in my life that I've ever been someplace strange where pulling a grill out and starting doing baby back ribs didn't draw a crowd. So do you think you're lonely or isolated? Because it seemed like you're connected to a fair number of people. Yeah. Like if you drop dead, how long would it take for somebody to figure it out? It depends if the squirrels took me away. <laughs> no, seriously. My son would get told by the police probably. No, but I mean, how long would it take for anyone to figure out? That I was missing? Yeah. Probably pretty darn quick. Well, Never I know heard. one small group of people that you've connected and I just, I wanted to say uh, thank you for doing that. And also, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate this. Well, I thought I think this is fun. Yeah, it is fun. I mean, I love to talk. <laughs> and I love to listen. Well, that takes two to tango or something. <laughs> thank you, Joan. You're welcome, Stuart. Joan and I still see each other on a regular basis, and we still argue from time to time did so this morning, but I think I understand her and appreciate her in a different way. Next week, you will not believe who is on the 100th episode, the woman who's been my therapist for 15 years, Tammy Bell, who's like a legend in the Charlotte recovery community and who is retiring and breaking a lot of people's hearts. Um, but richly deserved retirement and agreed to sit and chat with me about her life. And it is utterly fascinating. That's next week in the 100th episode of Man Listening.
Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge thank you and shout out to all of our supporters from the very beginning, coming up on two years, however you support us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. And the most important thing that the treatment industry or a sponsor or anybody else can do for somebody who's struggling with addiction, this is the number one thing. Help them understand the connection between the problems and the pains in their life and the use of alcohol and drugs. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.